Hi, this is John Hall. And this is Kathy Emmons. And we're from 101.5 Word FM. And you've just fallen into the Theology Theology Pit. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of the Theology Pit. This is Theology out of Pittsburgh, not like a bottomless pit, where they say if you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration and then starvation. But you'll probably die of the dehydration first. I'm your host, Samson Kovach, and in this theology pit, we are continuing in our discussion of salvation. This is actually part five in there. Um, you know, I've been thinking about maybe I should recap the last four or do something along those lines because what seems to be happening is whenever you start talking about history and things that are going on, you have a lot of different things happening at the same point historically. And it, it starts to become kind of a daunting task on where do you start? Um, in, in each theology pit, I have to make the decision, where do I start and what do I talk about first? What do I, I bring out? Because I understand, of course, where I'm going with this series. I know where the end results are going to be. And because we're talking about salvation, specifically on the application of the atonement that Christ died for us, we're zooming in on that preposition for. And since there are so many different, let's say differing views on what exactly it means for Christ's atonement to us and, and, and how it's applied, um, all of those have a genesis at some point. Um, there's nothing new under the sun. It's not like these um, later articulations all of a sudden came up with something new, saw something different, and just out of nowhere pulled things in. Everything seems to have the seeds and the nuggets from different historical places. Maybe they're arranged a little bit differently. Uh, it's sort of like making the argument with music. You know, there, there's truly no original music out there. It's the same music that's just been arranged differently. And it's in the arrangement that's the that's the thing. So in this arrangement that I'm doing for you, historically, as we're walking through the application of the atonement, you know, I have to take a step back and say, okay, well, where do we start? And I think that I may have found a starting point. So stay tuned. All right, well, one of the biggest places that we need to go is in the discussion between uh, Pelagius and Augustine. And in order to do that, we need to understand about these guys and we need to understand what was going on in their worldview, what was going on in the history of the church, what's happening, you know, since then. I mean, when we last left off, uh, we were talking about the creeds and, and what the creeds meant. And this becomes the issue because so far in the theology pit, really the only two, um, let's say, credible applications that we've talked about for the atonement um, has been the ransom to Satan view where humanity was captured by Satan and Christ died in order to pay for our sins and, and buy us back from Satan and the recapitulation view of the atonement that Christ had to live the perfect life um, in order to redo everything that Adam should have done and do it for us. Um, that when we look at just those two views, 
and we look at the creeds of the church and what's going on, they started asking themselves questions about, okay, well, if Jesus had to be truly human with a reasonable body, a reasonable soul, a reasonable mind, um, he was just like us. What does that mean? What does that mean in the fact of what was he recapitulating? What was he doing for us? What was he saving if he's saving all of us? Then where becomes our responsibility? What do we then have to do? I mean, it's one thing to think, okay, Jesus redid everything because I couldn't do it. And that's a very, you know, physical type thing. And we could even mix the spiritual thing in there because he spiritually obeyed. But as far as the mind goes and our behavior from now on, how do we work that in? Does his behavior then replace our behavior? These are really good questions. And these are questions that I think help spur what was taking place at this time. Now, like I said before, we're not going to be getting into the next articulation of the atonement um, for a couple hundred more years, but we need to understand what is kind of formulating the thought of, well, what are we responsible for? When are we responsible? How are we responsible? What, what does this mean? And that's where we get into the concept of original sin and free will. And this is the big thing between uh, Pelagius and Augustine is original sin and free will. And honestly, this is a point in the church. This, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this is so huge that even today, these arguments are still happening and going on. And you'll hear words like semi-Pelagianism, semi-Augustinianism. Um, the reformers came out of the Augustinian uh, uh, perspective. Um, the Roman church was Augustinian or semi-Augustinian. Same with the reformers, Augustinian, semi-Augustinian, depending on how you... Um, how you how you dish it out, how you articulate it, how you explain it when you explain these different things. And this has always been kind of challenging because Pelagius is a name that's used connotatively with negative connotations um, in, in the way that it's used. It's an insult to say that somebody's views um, go back to Pelagius is an it, it's it's an insult. It's saying, that their views are heretical and people, number one, don't want to hear that. And number two, if they do hear that, they, it just, it just sounds like they're, they're the person making that argument is creating a, a genetic fallacy. Um, it's what, it, what they're saying is that I am identifying you with this person. And so therefore you are wrong without really looking at what you know, the, the, the argument is what the people are saying. But I think another part of the problem is the people who may be being accused of being uh, a holding to a, a Pelagius uh, type doctrine or having elements of it aren't sure themselves of what Pelagianism is. And therefore, they just know kind of peripherally what it is, and that it's bad and it's wrong. So no matter what I say, there's no way that it is Pelagius because he was wrong. It was bad. It was, it was awful. And we're going to get 
into that. Um, I, I just want to keep using these words over and over because these are words that I want you to hold on to. And these concepts that we're talking about, I'm telling you, in all the different branches of Christianity and all the different separations and through the history of the church, this one that we're going to be talking about today, what's going on with, with these two guys and with this argumentation is where you see the biggest splits in Protestantism and where you see the splintering from the different Protestant groups and the difference between the Calvinists and the Arminians, difference between the Baptists and the Wesleyans, the difference between, you know, the, the, the Lutherans and the, oh, I don't know, you know, Lutherans and Presbyterians or, yeah, I mean, these, these, and, and as we're going through it, you're going to kind of see that. Now, I also want to touch on some other things that are sort of separate from these guys, but we're going on at the same time because even though they wrote out against it, even though they spoke out of against these, these views and these people and what was going on, it's not like when you condemn something or you say that something is unorthodox or heterodoxy or heresy or is heretical, that it completely goes away. Sometimes it creeps back in. Like I spoke before on Gnosticism, how Gnosticism is said to be wrong, that it is not Christian. It is not something that, you know, Christianity follows. It's not something that we should follow. But yet the concepts of Gnosticism creep into the life of the church, to the life of Christians. And people tend to think like that. People tend to think of, you know, things being spiritual is good, physical is bad. And, and, and we have those understandings. I mean, when, when, when people say drinking alcohol is wrong, it is evil, it is wicked, we shouldn't do it. They, I mean, how, however you feel about it, there's, there's different reasons for it, but saying it from a, a personally uh, or a, a theologically uh, standpoint, um, alcohol in and of itself theologically is not bad. What's done with it um, can be bad. Uh, people do have problems with it. They're, I'm not, you know, trying to say that there's, you know, it's, it's just okay and everybody should drink and everybody should do that. That's, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that this physical act that can alter the way people behave and the way people think and, and what they do because it's a physical uh, reaction that's going on, it's it's a it has an addictive nature to it. Those sort of things, they would immediately say that that is evil, because it, of the the physicality of it, of of what's what's going on with it. And they try to put a, a theological bent to it. And there are certain arguments that can be made. I don't think they're very good arguments, but there are arguments out there. Um, this starts to come from a Gnostic understanding that physical is bad. And spiritual is good. And why do people think that way today as opposed to all throughout history? Well, what I'm going to show you is that, and I, I hope that you've been noticing with our discussions of Gnosticism, with our discussion of um, Platonic thought, Stoic philosophy, those um, worldviews that people hold, that this is something that has plagued the psyche of mankind and the psyche of the church since day one, it's not something that goes away. Uh, some people think that the effect of the fall and the sinful nature is just physical and that somehow our minds are the one thing that God preserved and everybody can think right. 
but we just, because of our physical bodies, we act out wrong. Our physical bodies corrupt our, our mind and our soul. The immaterial part of us gets corrupted by the physical. That's a Gnostic thought. That's a Gnostic tendency. Um, so I, I want to kind of take us back here, and I want to I discuss some of these things so that I can refer back to them in, in later podcasts uh, because you're going to see some of these elements where they come up and then they die out. Now, I'll briefly mention when I, when I do come across them where they are today, but when we get to those later podcasts, I'll you know, bring it up again where, where they were and where they were found. And the first group that I want to talk about uh, does come from the second century, and they're called uh, the Montanists. And I, I've, I think I've brought them up before. And they were very charismatic. They were, um, you know, people that were going around doing prophecy, uh, speaking of tongues, um, doing this. So they, the problems that they were having, though, was number one, a lot of times their prophecies didn't happen. And we know what a prophet is supposed to be because the book of Deuteronomy tells you that these are the tests to, to see if somebody's a prophet. You know, if somebody comes to you saying that they're a prophet, they need to do a miraculous sign. Okay, so once they do this miraculous sign, then you can listen to them. And if, but that sign has to happen, you know, um, they have to show that, that proof. And then once that happens, um, you listen to them and they have to remain orthodox. Okay, and if they don't, if they say something that's contrary to orthodoxy, contrary to the scripture, contrary to what God has said, uh, Deuteronomy gives the example of if somebody does this sign and, you know, the sign doesn't happen, don't listen to him. If the sign does happen, listen to what they have to say. And if they say, come, let us go to another land and worship such and such a God, then they are not prophets. It doesn't matter if they've done a miracle. Okay. It doesn't matter if they've shown a supernatural sign or anything like that. You're to, you're to reject them. Okay. You don't do that. Now the, the Montanists were having this problem, um, because they were giving these prophecies and maybe some of them came true and maybe some of them didn't, it was hit and miss. And I mean, if I was just to randomly start spouting stuff off incoherently, and sometimes they would do that. Sometimes they would just string things together, words together. And it was sort of like the, um, Oh, who's, who's the guy names, name, name slipping me. Um, but, um, like the, he would just say things and people would write them down or he would write them down and they kind of look like gibberish. Okay. They would just be phrases of different things. And then people would go back and read things, uh, into what was said or what was written down and say, Oh, see, he predicted the future here. He predicted the future there. And that's not what a, a prophet was doing. Um, what, a prophet would do is actually say something and then it would, it would come to pass. It, you know, necessarily there would be a, a present that day proof, but there might be something in the future also that's, that's going to happen from it, but this established them. And then they went on to say, so this is why Jesus, whenever he performed miracles, um, he would do them and then he would, he would speak in a, thus saith the Lord type way. He would speak with authority because um, he was following what it meant to be a prophet, what was done. And it's not like he did a, a, a sign once, and then that was it. Every time he went somewhere new, that's what he had to do. Now, you have modern-day prophets and people that go around calling themselves prophets and those sort of things, and I'm not going to call someone a prophet or a prophetess until they prove it to me. 
And I don't want to hear this argument of, oh, well, you know, these people asked for, you know, a, a sign and all they'll have is the sign of Jonah. So therefore, no, no, no. They were wanting Jesus to do parlor tricks and keep proving himself over and over and those sort of things. And, and he had already proved himself. No. If you come to a new town and you say that you're a prophet, let me see what you've prophesied. Let me see what came true. Because you are making a claim as a prophet that you are going to be speaking for God. Okay. What you are saying is going to be on par with the strength of scripture. You are saying that the words that are coming out of my mouth are the same as what is in the Bible. You need to respect them the same way. That's a big deal. So if you're going to come to me and you're going to make these arguments and you're going to make these claims, then what I need from you is to follow what the Bible says in the way you're supposed to go about doing it. And if you don't do it that way, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to reject you. I'm going to call you a false prophet because that's exactly what you are. All right. So these people were doing this. Now, another thing that they were doing was, um, you know, speaking in tongues and they weren't speaking in tongues in the way of the New Testament in the book of Acts. Because in the book of Acts, the speaking in tongues, what was going on is at the Feast of Pentecost, you had all these Jews from all over the world that, um, that, that came to Jerusalem. And they were there for the, for the feast, for the celebration. Um, the Holy Spirit uh, came upon the disciples, the apostles, and they started speaking in tongues. And the people said... Who are these people who are speaking in my native tongue? Because these are people from all over the world. I mean, they all, you know, spoke uh, many languages at, at this time, at this point. I mean, these people, I guess, is the word polyglot? I think that's what it is. They spoke many, many languages. And so they could communicate with each other through, you know, speaking Hebrew, through speaking uh, probably Aramaic at the time, or speaking through um, Greek. Uh, you know, there was a Koine Greek, a common language, depending on what they were doing and who they were talking to. But they also came from other parts of the world that spoke other languages. And if they grew up there in those other parts of the world and were, you know, coming here, it would be a native language to them. So now you have these Galileans and, you know, these people are following, you know, um, Jesus of Nazareth and, and those things who are then all of a sudden speaking miraculously in these languages, given the gospel languages that they didn't know. And all these people came to them. I, I, f I forget the exact number of scripture gives. I'm just, I'm kind of doing this off the top of my head here. I'm going off in this direction. Um, but I think it was like 3000 were baptized that day or something like that. And that was what speaking in tongues was. Now these Montanists were speaking gibberish, and they were, you know, uh, randomly throwing phrases out and randomly, you know, saying these things. And people were looking at that going, that's not like what the apostles did. We're kind of ignoring you because of that. And what you're saying isn't coming to pass. Now, in a lot of modern charismatic, and I don't want to beat up on the on the, the charismatic Pentecostal movement in, in, in churches today. That's not my goal for this. What my goal is to do is to make the bridge here between the, the um, uh, you know, I, I guess this kind of would be in the Great Awakening and everything, but the, the charismatic movement of the early 1900s, um, especially from like the uh, Azusa Street revival in California, um, that this is... The, 
this parallels in, in what's going on. I've been part of charismatic Pentecostal churches. I've heard this type of thing going on. I've seen people saying, It's just gibberish. Okay. And then sometimes I've heard people do that and then give their own interpretation of it. And their own interpretation gives no new doctrine. Their interpretation is just randomly like, yay, 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 I say unto the the people of God. Yes, 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 that you must, you know. I mean, it's just like the, it's not really edifying in, in any type of way. It's nothing that you couldn't already get from scripture just from reading it. There's nothing there. Now, the Montanists were, were doing this and claiming this was from the Holy Spirit, and they also gave no new doctrine. And that's what people notice. They're like, well, you, you say that you're speaking for God and God's speaking this. This is important. What new doctrine does he have? What should we be following? What should we be doing? And there was no new doctrine. There was only stuff about church discipline, about you know, f- uh, following the Lord and, and, and doing all these things and this sort of stuff. And they had other problems. They were claiming to be you know, the promised paraclete, which, which was the, the Holy Spirit that, that you know, Jesus promised would, would come, the, the helper. Um, paraclete, someone that comes alongside. It's, um, I've only heard it uh, other than this used in, in military terms of, of what a paraclete is, someone that has your back, someone that's coming alongside you, a helper. Um, in that sense, but this is just you know, church discipline stuff, and there is a a parallel between the charismatic movement and the behavior of the Montanists, and that this stuff was rejected. Now, um, Saint Christensen uh, later on, um, I, I doubt that we're going to touch on him too much in in this series, but when he was writing in the fifth uh, or sixth century about um, the the gifts of the Spirit, when, when he was talking about what, what Paul wrote about um, the gifts of the Spirit and everything, uh, he says, look, I mean, he's honest in, in, his, in his writing and his um, uh, commentary on, on the, the books of the, uh, the Corinthians. He, he says, look, this whole thing with spiritual gifts, I have to say, I'm kind of agnostic about because we don't see that anymore. It doesn't happen. Uh, we don't, we don't have people that are speaking in tongues and performing miracles and, and doing these things. It, 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 they seem to have ceased. They seem to have stopped. Um, so very early on, you have this. Now, even though um, there is a story right before Christensen was Augustine, and Augustine uh, was sent to um, the Anglicans by Gregory because he saw some Anglican slaves and thought they were just beautiful um, with their with their white skin and uh, blonde hair and blue eyes or what have you, and said they need to hear the gospel. And so he sent Augustine to them, and um, Augustine uh, went in the name of the Lord, and they... Either I have to relook up the story, but they weren't listening to him or something. But he proved himself by healing somebody who was blind of sight. And he wrote, and there's letters from him and Gregory back and forth about this. And, you know, Pope Gregory says, look, he, man, he's like, we, we don't see this type of stuff. You need to be very humble. God is working through you. Now, what was going on here with this whole um, gifts of the spirit type thing? Well, like a prophet, a miracle was performed, and then 
the word came afterwards. And the word of God was the gospel message that he was giving. He was staying orthodox. He was giving. Now, at the time, there was a big argument over when Easter was. And, you know, Gregory's like, make sure they know when Easter is. You know, I mean, it was, you know, just the date of Easter just was a big deal. Uh, But uh, that's what was happening. That's an example that we have in, in church history. After the time of the apostles, when a a miracle occurred when a supernatural sign gift happened, a healing, and what came after it. It's it, you could see Augustine filled that role as a prophet in order to um, uh, uh, share the gospel and in in what was going on. And, you know, he got angry at them because they thought, you know, they they were trying to control him and say, yes, come, I tell you what, uh, we will follow you and we'll do all this stuff and and we'll believe and, and, you know, we'll do everything if uh, we're going to get together and you do another miracle, do another trick. And Augustine's like, no. No, these aren't parlor tricks. These aren't games. I'm not going to sit there and and do all this stuff. I'm not for your amusement. And you don't control me. You don't control God. You don't control God's will. That's not what this is about. I did this. This is a miraculous sign gift. You're obligated to, you know, accept the gospel. Um, you know, in 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 which they did. I mean, that was a, uh, you know, it was something that that happened along that time. But um, that's how the gospel then you know went uh, in that direction. Now. That, that opened the way for, you know, uh, monasteries to be settled and churches and, you know, all that stuff. But, um, but the point is, is that whenever you have this going on, it stays very orthodox and it stays, think of it as like a very, uh, you know, rational way, you know, at this time. But from the second century, from, I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, when I say second century between 100 and 199 AD. That's what I'm talking about with, with this stuff. It's not like we're talking about, oh, it's so far away. Um, so those were the Montanists, and they had a foothold in the Christian community, you know, for you know quite some time. Now, yet another group, you had, you had a couple different groups here. Um, the uh, the Donatists were another one who they were like the uh, the Novantians, the Novantiists. And we talked about them before. Those were the ones where during the persecutions, they were saying, hey, you can't have, you know, people that sacrifice to gods who, um, you know, uh, ran away, who, who did all these apostasy things. They, you know, they were caught. They burned scripture because, you know, they were commanded to like those sort of things. These people should not be in the church. OK, they were like the, you know the, the uh, second century, third century, uh, Puritans, even, even up into the uh, fourth century. Um, especially after the Diocletian persecutions. Okay. Um, the, uh, Navantians were real hardcore, but then the Donatists came along after the Navantians and, and they were still in the same thread. Okay. And, you know, you had the, the Catholic or the universal church saying, no, we have to stay universal. Saints and sinners are, are a part of it. The, the church body is at the same time full of those who are saints and those who are sinners, the, the just and the unjust. That is the body of Christ. And, um, the Donatists were like, no, uh, but the Donatists also, you know, rejected a lot of the physical things as bad because that's what they were experiencing and that's what they were seeing, you know, people doing and that sort of thing. Um, you know, they eventually, 
you know, went off into, you know, Northern Africa and that, and they still had a lot of influence because they, their influence is seen on the Eastern churches, um, of them wanting to be, you know, pure, them wanting to be Orthodox, right? Believing they, you know, a, a right belief does not reject Christ and sacrifice to false gods. It, that's not a right belief. Um, so you can still see that in Eastern churches. Now they have all but disappeared, um, in the seventh and eighth centuries, whenever you had the rise of Islam and Islam, Islamic conquest coming through and um, killing them because they were going to stand for their faith. I mean, Muhammad said that he never met a Christian that he couldn't convert or kill. Well, these are the ones that he killed because they were not, they were not going to waver. Um, you know, so it may have diluted the uh, Greek church a bit, but they still were there and they still you know, existed. And especially at the time of, um, Augustine, uh, these guys were definitely around, you know, so you have that going on. Now, the third one that we have is the Manichaeanists. Okay. And Manichaeanism was an order that, um, St. Augustine followed. Um, he followed them because he was, he, he, the way he was raised, um, his mother was a Christian. His father was a, a pagan, but, he was like a, um, he was a laid back pagan. We just say nominal. He was a pagan just cause he was a pagan, not really a Christian. Yeah. Follow the gods. Hey, it's fun. I like the festivals. I like to eat like, you know, whatever that type thing, you know? Well, he, you know, eventually fell in this thing called Manichaeanism and Manichaeanism is like a mix between Zoroastrianism and the Gnostic faith. Um, the Zoroastrians were very, very, very big on, um, right acting. Okay. Physical is bad and it's in the way that you act. Okay. Think of like taking like the stoic philosophy of you have to learn. Knowledge is what saves you. Okay. Well, they would say knowledge is what you need in order to act properly and to deny flesh, to deny you know, everything is because the Gnostic side, everything spiritual is good. Everything physical is bad. So physicality, no, wrong, bad. Even like marriage, because procreation, you know, it's a physical act. It's it's a physical, addictive, carnal act. Okay, as um as I heard my my brother say one time that um that life is a social disease and it all it's always fatal. Um, but that's kind of how they looked. And Augustine was part of this saying, yeah, you have to deny yourself all of these physical things, all of these physical pleasures, all of this stuff. But he had this weakness and I mean, he had a wife and he had a, a child and he would constantly go back to it. He loved her, um, Sex is a very big theme with, um, with, with Augustine. Um, it's a, you know, this, this type of struggle that, you know, he even, even says in, in some points, um, can't remember exactly where, but he, he talks about, you know, no, being with a woman is like, it's such a, a great thing that you can't, you can't not do it. How, how is it even possible? How, how is this? And he spent like, like a decade being, a Manichaean and, you know, I guess technically like a Manichaean Christian and, you know, saying that, no, this is the way we need to do it. This is the way we need to behave. And he's out there preaching this stuff, but he's not living it. 
And he's struggling with this because he's like, how, how is it? It's absolutely impossible. There is no way that you can do these two things. Okay. There's no way you can stay away from women and you can be, you know, completely holy and deny everything physical. And then he comes across monasteries. He comes across monks who are able to deny themselves all these things, who live a celibate monastic life. Um, They have no physical goods. They have no physical pleasures. They, um, there's a type of of self-existence in a way. This is a a saitism. And he looks at this and says, how is this possible? These people are idiots. They don't have any knowledge. They don't have this greater knowledge. They don't have this wiser understanding. How is it that without this wise understanding, these, these Christians are able to live this life? And, you know, through hearing the, um, the, the, the sermons of Ambrose, um, and, and there's there's rumor that you know Ambrose saw him in the crowd and directly like changed his sermon to direct it at Augustine because they needed somebody like him, you know, in in the church that was very articulate and that was able to uh, you write stuff out and fight. And I mean, you call it providence if you want because Augustine is one of the biggest influences in the uh, Christian church. Now, this dualism that the Manichaeans had. Um, between, you know, the, the flesh and the, the spirit helped to explain sin rationally. And, and I think that's what, you know, Augustine uh, kind of got pulled towards. But here's the thing is that you, you, you internalize this and it's still going to come out. Okay. It's still who you are. It's still a part of, you know, what you think and the way that you are before people, um, truly start living for God. I mean, people may be Christians a long time before they decide, I really need to get serious about this. And sometimes their former thoughts and their former behaviors still come in and still pollute in the way that they think while they are trying to be, you know, an Orthodox Christian and trying to live right. And, it, and it's a big struggle. So we can't expect to see these, these people who are, you know, church fathers are huge in the, the theological community as though they were zapped with some perfect doctrine, as though they were able to understand everything and put it down perfectly. What has been given to us and what's been um, taught to us about them and about their articulations and those sort of things are a more pure understanding of where they were going and, and what they were. But at the time, they were struggling. They struggled with this stuff. It wasn't neatly packaged for them like it is for us. Not to say that what we believe is completely foreign to what they taught, but it's that it's the, it's all the good stuff that we get taught. And it's because to go back and do what I'm doing, it takes a lot of time. I mean, I've been talking for 35 minutes here and I got a lot of stuff to get through and I'm trying to give you this background on what these guys are thinking, what's going on at the time and, and you know, what's happening. Okay. So, you know, because of uh, uh, Augustine having this, this idea, this understanding and from where he came from and the 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 hold that the Manichaeans had and the hold that the, the Montanists had and the hold that the Gnostics had, 
this gets passed down through us to today. And we can see this in the Christian church because how do we view sex in the Christian church? It's something that we don't talk about. Even the Song of Solomon, which really celebrates, you know, sex, and it's very, very graphic. It, you know, talks about how uh, he loves that her, you know, breasts are like the size of of a giant cluster of dates and that, you know, his, and, and she talks about, you know, him being as as tall as a cedar tree and, you know, firm and like, you know, all this stuff and, you know, the smell that rises from, you know, it's usually translated navel, but from what some Jews have said, it's a smell that's below her navel that's rising up, that's intoxicating him. And this is very graphic. And so people listen to this going, oh my goodness, I can't believe you're talking about this. And yeah, that's, this is why, because of these understandings that this suspicion of the the libido, as um, as has been written in uh, Paul Tillich's book, A History of Christian Thought. Here, he he, he says um, in in speaking of, of Augustine and, and this sort of thing, he says the suspicion of the libido was so deeply rooted in the Christian tradition that, in spite of their radicalism, the reformers were unable to eradicate the remnants of Neoplatonic asceticism and were suspicious of everything sexual. This is still true of Protestants in countries under Calvinist influence. Okay. Calvinism out of Calvinism is where you get your, your Presbyterians, um, you get your, your reformed faith, uh, and you know, those sort of things. Um, people who are very reserved. So you look at, you know, like the, the Puritans, um, you look at, uh, I think, think like the, the pilgrims and think of all like the, you know, how, um, you know, the, the jokes that, that go on about how, you know, they would not give into their carnal passions and this whole thing about carnal Christians and, you know, all this stuff that's coming from the second, third and fourth century. That's where it's rooted because it wasn't completely spoken out against but it wasn't spoken out so much for, it's just a struggle and it's a Gnostic struggle. This whole understanding of sex and of sexual desire and, and that sort of thing. And it's not celebrated, but when you read the Bible, especially the old Testament and you go through sex is celebrated, it's a good thing. It's never seen as bad. I mean, one of the first things that God did after he created man and woman is told them to have sex and they did. And God said, that's good. That's good. Yeah, you should be doing that. We're like, woohoo. Yeah, it is good. It's great. You know, um, but to say that in a church, I mean, I remember being in a church and saying one time, you know, we should really have a, uh, a Sunday school lesson on the, um, not Sunday school like kids, but like adult Sunday school lesson on the um, the Song of Solomon and go through it. And a woman, I believe that she was a, um, a wife of one of the pastors said, oh yeah, that'd be a good idea. We'd have to split up, you know, the men and the women into different groups and, you know, have that talk. And I'm thinking, what? Why? Because of this, because of the Manichaeanism, because of the Montanists, because of the Donatists, because of this understanding of this, this purity, this Gnostic pollution into the church. That is why we are so, you know, kind of, uh, backwards with this, with this understanding, even though Augustine was great and everybody wants to go back to him. Hey man, he did struggle. Okay. This was a, you know, a a problem, um, that was going on now while he's arguing with all this stuff. Okay. While he's arguing with the Donatists and with the, uh, I mean, these people that were around for like, you know, a hundred years or more, and they're very, uh, predominant in Northern Africa where he was, um, he then uh, catches wind of a guy by the name of Pelagius.
everyone. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. Pelagius was a British monk, first off, and one of his uh, disciples or, um, I don't know, I guess, yeah, you might as well say disciples, um, but not like they were outside the Christian faith. This is all within the Christian faith right now. Uh, they were going to be um, ordained as a priest, and you know they, they come into town, and his student is teaching these things that um, Pelagius had taught, and people are like, whoa, what, what are you talking about here? And they won't ordain them. They're, they're having some issues with it. So Pelagius then has to show up. And this is where we get into the big argument between Augustine and Pelagius and what, and what's going on. Now, Augustine was teaching, um, along with the church that mankind, we sin because we are sinners. Okay. The mankind is a, a lump of sin, basically. Okay. In Adam, in Adam's loins, okay, we were all present there when he ate in the garden. It's as though Adam held up the fruit and said, should I eat this? And all of us through history in him said, yes, do it. It's as though God in a way, could see, and, and some people made this argument, he could see into the future. He could see potentially into the future also, the, the potentials and the actual, and could see that if everybody was given their own chance, that everybody would have made the same choice as Adam, okay? So in Adam, in his loins is where we were. And because of that, when he ate and it tainted him, it tainted us. Now think of it in this way. Because this is a traducian understanding that the, that the parents create the body and the soul, okay? And if the parents create the body and the soul, then the body and the soul, when the parents create them, it's, it's sinful from conception, sinful from birth. The person is sinful from the moment that the sperm and the egg fertilized, okay? Because they are material and immaterial and the parents create the material and immaterial. They are fallen people and so therefore they create a fallen person. All right. So if somebody, if a woman is pregnant and she drinks a lot of alcohol, she's an alcoholic, and that child has a, a fetal alcohol syndrome because of that, you know, why can't that child just stop having that problem? If they're, if, if, if they're free to do so, well, you would say, well, because there was a physical change that occurred. And that child doesn't have the choice, doesn't have the ability. It can't, it can't do that. It's, it's, it would be the same thing. Take another example of like mental retardation. Uh, why can't you tell someone who's mentally retarded? Well, just stop being mentally retarded. Well, it's, it's something that happened that was a, a process of, you know, the physical, they would say, well, the brain's not functioning right physically. The, the brain isn't functioning right. And so there's a, there's a mental issue going on. They have no control over it. They can't have, they can't help it. Sin is in the same way. This is what Augustine's saying, that when Adam sinned, because we were all theoretically in him as part of Adam, that it all, we, we inherited that, okay? It was, it was imputed to us in this way. We, we inherited all of it. And this is why Christ is called the second Adam in the recapitulation view, because Jesus being born of a virgin was not 
tainted with this edemic um, sin. Okay, because and this is where some of the argument, and this is this is all hypothetical here, of that sin um, actually comes through the man, um, that that it's the seed of the man uh, that is what's you know, propagating this because Adam was our federal head. And so um, Augustine's making these arguments and saying, yeah, that's why Christ had to come and he could die for all of mankind, um, that he could represent that he is this second Adam, as uh, you know, Paul had said. Okay. So Pelagius comes along and Pelagius says, look, um, the assumption that man could not help sinning seemed to be a total insult to his creator. Okay. And Augustine said one time, Lord, uh, give thou what thou commandest, but command what thou wilt. You know, it's like, God, whatever you want, you know, you, you command what you want, but, but, you know, then you need to, you know, you need to help us in that sense. Like, you know, okay, you can give us what you want, but you need to help us with that. And Pelagius didn't like that because, you had other views like, you know, uh, the creationist view where the parents create the body and God creates the soul or like a, an origin view of the pre-existence theory that, you know, all the souls are pure up in heaven. They're all kind of like blank slates that get put in. And to say that God is creating something evil and wicked and then putting that evilness into you, that's appalling to to. Pelagius. He's not looking at it from a traducian point of view. He's looking at it from, are you telling me that God creates evil and then puts it in, in a body? That is, that's absurd. And, you know, when you kind of look at this, you can look at it as a category mistake. And it's, and it's a mistake that people make within baptism, where you have uh, people who believe in infant baptism called paedobaptists and people who believe in, in adult baptism or believer's baptism called credo baptism. And if you ask somebody who believes in adult baptism, why somebody who you can't baptize babies, they would say, well, because they don't know any better. Because you have to know, you have to make a profession, you have to say these things, you have to do that. And people who are making the argument for paediobaptism aren't saying that at all. It's a category mistake. They're like, no, 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 this is to, um, to we are either washing away original sin or we are bringing people into the church. It is, we are baptizing them and bringing them into the church, just like the, um, the, the uh, sign of circumc- circumcision was before, but this is what baptism is now. And that's what they, so to impose your view onto another view, even though you're using the same terminology, but you're using different words, you're, you're using a different definition of the word. I think this is the problem that Pelagius was having when he would hear this, and he's not thinking from a traducian point of view. He's not thinking that the parents create the body and the soul. He's thinking that the parents create the body, God creates the soul. If you say that from conception, the soul is sinful, you are implying that God creates evil and puts it in. This is just appalling to Pelagius in just on that level, totally appalling. Okay. Pelagius says, no, 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 no. Man, because we are made in God's image, we have the ability to live a perfect life like Christ did. Okay. Because of us being in the image of God, we can actually choose to follow the law 
perfectly. We have this free will in order to follow the law. And he would give scriptural examples. He would say, look, in Deuteronomy 30, uh, 19, God says, he set life and death before him, bidding him to choose life. So what's this? I mean, what he's saying is that the final decision is man's free will. We can actually do this. It is theoretically possible for somebody to live a perfect life and keep the law. Okay. Now, he wouldn't go so far as to say that it is outside of God. He would, you know, even make the argument that Jesus couldn't even do it outside of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. You know, that's necessary. But he argues that there were three features that had to go on. Okay. The first one is the power. Okay. The second is the will. And the third is the realization. Okay. That these things are are happening. These things are going on. Now, the first of this, the power, this comes exclusively from God. Okay. So if God does not give you the power to be able to live perfectly and to be able to hold the law perfectly, you're not going to be able to do it. Okay. And this is like the genesis of something called prevenient grace. Okay. That God gives you a certain type of grace that prevents you from being from just choosing evil all the time because Augustine was making the argument that we sin because we are sinners we we you know constantly we're going to choose evil we have freedom of choice sure you know you have a choice you can either choose evil or evil like th- those are your choices you know, it's it's not possible for us to not sin, uh, non posse, non peccari. He would say that when we become a Christian, though, when, when God comes in and changes our hearts and we become a Christian, then he makes it possible for us not to sin. But it's also possible for us to sin. So posse non peccari and uh, posse peccari. So it's possible for us not to sin and possible to sin. So we can either choose to sin or we can choose to not sin or to sin. Okay. So we, we then have this, this choice in what we're doing, but you know, we're still going to sin because of our nature, because of what we are. Now, this prevenient grace that, and I'm just calling it prevenient grace. The word prevenient grace doesn't come about until like the 17th, 18th century. Uh, when you start talking about, um, uh, the Arminians and, um, they were, you know, writing against the Calvinists and, and the Arminian faith uh, within their line. That's where you get the, uh, the the Baptists from, the Pentecostals, the Methodists, the Wesleyans. They all come from, you know, that tradition uh, where this uh, idea of no total depravity, that there's nothing we can do because we're sinners and unless God comes in, there's no way that, you know, anybody can be saved. And, you know, you, we'll go through the TULIP acronym later of the total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, those, those sort of things. But for right now, some people accuse um, people who are um, uh, Arminian of usurping God's authority or claiming that, you know, we can merit God's favor or that, you know, we do this in order to save ourselves. And they all say, no, 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 no. God is the first cause in our salvation. Okay. In our justification of what's going on. Okay. Pelagius is saying the same thing. He's saying, no, 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 no. God gives us the power to do this. Okay. And then it's up to our will that we have that he's given us because we're made in his his image and the realization after that. Okay. And so the this first comes exclusively from God, and then we are assisting. So the first one is a a um 
uh, a, a monism. Okay, it's it's God alone. It's monogistic. That's what I'm, I'm trying to say. Monogistic. The second one is synergistic, which is God and man working together. Um, in the reform view. Uh, you would look at sanctification and say it's synergistic. It's us and God working together. Okay, justification, monogistic. The same thing is being said here. This power that's coming from God, totally monogistic. We Nothing we can do to, to warrant it. There's nothing. God just gives it. Now, does God give it to everybody equally? That's where the argument um, it really stems in, in this. Some, you know, that hold the prevenient grace today say, yes, everybody on the earth, God gives it to him e- evenly. God balances the scales, so you're not inclined to choose b- between good or evil. You're not swayed one way or another. You are actually able to choose whether or not you want to follow God. And everybody in the world of all time has always had this choice. It's fair. And we'll get to the fairness of it, um, you know, a little bit later when we start talking more about free will. But I want to I want to pull this out in what uh, Pelagius is saying. And and like a lot of this stuff, OK, is it's, it's hard to tell on whether or not Pelagius is saying this or if this is the concentration from those who followed him. Okay. And like I said before, you know, with us and, and, and Augustine and people say that they're in the Augustinian uh, line, did Augustine really hold to this 100% or was this something that we received? Same thing here with, with Pelagius. But I'm, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to show you that this is palatable. Okay. This is understandable why this would come about because nobody's talked about this before in, in church history. These ideas that I'm telling you right now in this fifth century argument here, this is Christian. Okay. These are what Christianity is. This is what Christians are believing. This is what they're thinking. Okay. So if you come from a tradition that says you need proper doctrine in order to be saved, then nobody is ever saved until they get to the point of the people who are saying that and what they believe, which means that God is impotent in that sense to save anybody until then. And then you get a whole host of problems after that. But uh, back to uh, Pelagius and and what he was saying, you know, it's, it, 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 what I'm trying to say, it, it's wrong to infer that um, that this this autonomy, uh, it, okay, is withdrawing man from uh, God's sovereignty. Okay, he's he's not. Pelagius never made that claim. God is sovereign. God is in control. This is the way that that you know God's doing this sort of thing. Okay, so his system kind of goes in in a way that it, it's like first he rejects the idea that man's will has any intrinsic basis in favor of wrongdoing as a result of the fall. Okay. That means that just because Adam sinned, that doesn't mean that everybody is guilty for it. That's unfair. Okay. That doesn't, doesn't make sense. Okay. Each soul is created immediately by God. Okay. That's what he believes. So like you said, if each soul is created by God, how, how can you say that it's evil? Okay. And if it's created by God, it cannot come into the world soiled by original sin that's transmitted by Adam. That's ridiculous because you're, you're telling me that somehow Adam's sin affected Adam and the world, and then it went up into heaven and affected God to the point where God creates an evil soul and puts it in. These, these are his, his, his arguments. He's saying, no, that's not, that's not it at all. Okay, um, it, it introduced death, physical and spiritual, and and, and set going um, a habit of, of disobedience. Okay, and this is later propagated because of his example. Okay, 
children behave like their parents because they learn it from their parents. All right. If you teach your children badly and bad behavior through your behavior, then of course they're going to behave that way. People sin because we saw Adam sin and then Adam's children sinned and then their children saw that and their children and their children and their children and their children. Okay. That was, that was the difference is that it's just by a bad influence. Okay. And so he, uh, uh, let me, let me kind of look over my notes here real quick. Cause there's some more stuff that I, w- I want to bring out. Um, that before he begins exercising his will, there is only in him what God has created. Okay. And that is you know, perfect and pure. So baptism in Pelagius's view does not wash away original sin. It's an impossibility. It's, it's, it's ridiculous to think of that. So he would teach that it's, you know, the, the baptism for adults, okay, um, was, medicinal regeneration, regenerative. It was, um, you know, a a cleansing, it was showing an outward sign of an inward change, so to speak. Um, but it was just more ceremonial. Okay. Um, when it was done on infants, it was just, um, benedictory. Okay. It was just, it was something that is done. It's, it's like a, 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 a dedication, an infant dedication, like those sort of things. It, it has no, transference of grace. It has no, um, imputation of, uh, of grace being poured in. There is no, you know, grace from God that is going into, you know, uh, into the child and, and, and doing that. Now, Pelagius was not denying at all that, you know, that we get grace from God. He's not denying that at all. He's just saying in certain aspects, it's not what you know, uh, Augustine is saying, it's not what, you know, the, the, the church is moving towards when we look at the sacraments and, and this gratia infusa, this grace infused within us. Um, he's saying that grace is actually necessary, but it's necessary every hour and every moment of the day and every act, we constantly need this, this grace being, you know, bestowed on us. Um, but we need it to fulfill God's commands, just like Jesus needed it in order to fulfill God's commands. But by grace, what Pelagius is saying is that he really means it's it's the, the concept of us having free will, the possibility of us not sinning because of our free will and God being our example rather than Adam and our parents being our example. And this is given to us at our creation, this, this ability God has given us. So that's where, you know, when he talks about, you know, grace imputed, that's where he's talking about, okay, it's, it's revelation through reason, of God's, God's law, understanding God's law and reasoning through it and what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And, um, it's, it's, it's helping us in that way. God's grace is then moving through us. So it's, it's us and him. This is that, you know, the first one was the the power that we need, the, the will itself. And then this is us working with God. And, um, this has really been obscured through an evil custom. Like that's the big uh, problems with it. Um, that grace is just a, it's, it's a grace of knowledge that God has given us because if we're affected by 
say, and, and you would have to be a trichotomist to make this argument, um, uh, dichotomy would be that you believe that there's a body and a soul. Trichotomy would be that there's a body, soul, spirit, or body, soul, and mind, or body, spirit, and mind, however you want to divvy that up. But you have three parts. You have a material part, which is your body, a spiritual part, which is the relational part to God, and then you have a cognitive part, which is the mind. And what he would say is that um, this grace is this grace of knowledge on our mind, okay, that, that, that it, our mind, because it is connected to our body, our brain and our body are connected. Um, the, the mind and the heart isn't, it, that's a false dichotomy, but it's, it's, it's all one that this physicality, this, this bad attitude that we got from Adam, this bad thinking doesn't get better. It will just get worse. And it's because of the grace of God that we can understand and grasp this knowledge and this, this teaching and that, um, you know, grace is consisting in law and teaching. So the fact that we have, the, um, the scriptures and we have God's grace. This is why we can, um, aid in our salvation. This is why we can save ourselves. Okay. Now, um, Pelagius will have nothing to do with the idea that God bestows special favor on some. Okay. This is a, a predestination argument. Um, it's the argument on why some people go to hell and why some people go to heaven. Pelagius says that's, that's ridiculous. God is a fair God. God is a, God is a just God and God will bestow, he will not bestow uh, special favor on some. He will not predestine. He will not choose. He there will not be a remnant. Is that no, everybody Everybody has the ability and the option of choosing God. I'm going to try and stress this point as much as I possibly can right now, because when we get into later views of the application of the atonement and what what it means, you're going to hear me make the argument um, that some make that Christ's death was ontologically necessary, okay, which means the being of it, the physicality of it, that it actually happened. That was necessary, but knowledge of it was not, okay? It was necessary to take care of the sins of the world, to cover the sins of the world. You know, Lamb of God, have mercy upon us. You taketh away the sins of the world. But the knowledge of it, the knowledge of Christ is not necessary, okay? And there is a predominant church that does hold to that view. Certain times, um, it's stronger than others, and that's the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Right now, in 2015, the Roman Catholic Church seems to be in a swing that it's really holding to this, and this is called an exclusive inclusivism, where through no fault of someone not knowing about Christ, are they condemned to hell. That knowledge is not uh, what what they what they need. If they're just doing their best and through no fault of their own, Christ's death was necessary and it's applied to them. And we'll we'll go over that later and we'll break down those arguments. We'll show the the strengths and the weaknesses of it. I personally reject that. I don't I don't hold to that. I don't I don't believe that. And I, I think that there's good reasons not to. But I don't want to go there right now. I just want to show that Pelagius is making this argument that everybody gets their own fair shake. God makes it apparent to everybody because God is just. Now, this is also an argument for provenient grace that um, 
the Arminian faith would make, and that people who are even in the Calvinist faith may hold to initially that it wouldn't be fair. And, you know, it doesn't sound fair. You know, I'm not trying to say that I think that this is the greatest thing in the world and this is it. And if people don't know, well, I guess they just go to hell. I, I, okay. I'm not trying to come across like that. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just trying to say that when we get to these points later on, we need to understand now where the beginning of this is coming from. And this is what Pelagius is saying, and it's being adopted later on, but they're saying that they're not. And that's where it becomes problematic, okay? But I understand the, the emotional argument for it, especially as a postmodern, uh, you know, someone that holds, that was raised in a, a postmodern worldview. I totally get it. Like, yeah, no, everybody should have their own chance, okay? Um, but he also say that by merit alone, men advance in holiness, okay? That... Um, the concept of predestination operates strictly in accordance with the quality of the lives he foresees they will leave. So he's saying that God looks into the future and he foresees, he, he knows in the future, he foreknows who is going to live right, who is going to accept Christ, who is going to strive for holiness, who is going to seek for God, who is going to do that. And those are the people that he saves that he knows will be saved because, um, you know, he has given everybody this, this equal chance. Okay. Now, because of this, um, this leads us down a, a path that Pelagius does not shrink away from. There are certain presuppositions and he doesn't shrink away from them. Okay. And this implies that man can, if he will observe God's commandments without sinning. Okay. And Pelagius fully said, yeah, absolutely. And why? Well, let's look at what the Bible says. Okay. Leviticus 19.2. Ye be holy for I am holy. Okay. How can Yahweh say for us to be holy for he is holy if we don't have the ability to be holy? And in Matthew 5.48, you shall be perfect because your heavenly father is perfect. Oh, okay. That means that we have the ability to do this. This is big in like the Wesleyan and holiness movements that you are presently currently sanctified. You have been justified and you have been sanctified. You don't sin anymore. You, you are perfect. You are holy. Okay. They make that argument and they go back to the Bible for it. But this is what Pelagius is saying. He is coming out and he's saying this exact same thing that we are hearing today from these other movements. Okay. And when we, and I want to stress that because later on in later pits, we're going to be coming back to this when we get to the application of the atonement, uh, when we talk about, you know, the order of salvation through the Wesleyan movement and the holiness movement and, and that sort of thing. Um, but what he envisions is not a state of perfection that was acquired once for all, but rather um, one which is attained by strenuous efforts of the will and which only steadily increasing application will be able to maintain. Okay, It's that argument of that which saves you is that which sustains you. So if you are in the say the co-pilot seat of your salvation, okay, and God helps you and then he lets you fly the plane. All right, by you staying on course and by you not driving it into a mountain and not doing anything like that, you are going to maintain and you are going to be going towards a state of perfection. And this is how you go towards your glorification. Okay, this this is what you do. So um, 
He pushed back against the the denial of the original sin that's found in, in Adam. And nobody, Wesleyans, Arminians, anybody of that uh, of that nature, are, is denying original sin. I want to say that right now. They're not going that far with Pelagius to say, oops, bang the microphone, I'm gesticulating as I talk. Um, nobody's going that far as to say, no, there's no such thing as original sin. Okay, they're saying, no, we do have original sin, all right? So if you say to someone, oh, gee, that's a... Uh, Pelagian understanding, you sound like a Pelagius, and they may say, no, we believe in original sin, but that might not be the aspect of it that you're criticizing. But they would, uh, Pelagius would teach that a uh, man was created mortal, okay, and he would have died anyways, um, whether he sinned or not. And there's been speculations and arguments about Jesus on whether or not if Jesus wasn't crucified, would he have died or, you know, what would have happened? And there's all kinds of stuff that, you know, go in, in for that. Uh, children are eligible for eternal life, even without baptism. Okay. That if a child was baptized or not, it didn't matter. You could still, you know, he could still attain eternal life. He was still, God could still you know, save him in that way. And, um, uh, the incompatibility of grace and free will started being enlarged with his followers and that sort of thing. Cause how can you have free will if grace is coming in and changing what that is, you know? So it's sort of like God's like a one and done thing. He kind of does stuff and, and pulls it away. Um, it was, it's, he has a very, very, very rosy view of human nature that man is basically good. Okay. Man is basically good and not that man is basically evil. All right. So this doctrine and Pelagius, just to kind of wrap up this pit here, and I didn't even get into a lot of stuff that I want to talk about, but I think this is very important to understand Pelagius's view before we understand um, Augustine's view. And I've, I've been talking in an Augustinian way about salvation in the pit. That's That's been a large... Um, umbrella over my, over my talk. So, you know, you kind of understand with, um, you know, what Christ is doing, the recapitulation view, um, the fact that we're sinners, those sort of things. And I, I touched on Augustine a little bit to get to Pelagius, cause I think it's kind of misunderstood and, and maligned in a way in, in what he thought, but he was, um, he and his doctrine were finally anathematized at the council of Ephesus, um, in, uh, 431, July 22nd to be exact, 431. But, and what anathematize means was that an anathema is that you have no hope of salvation ever. Like that's how bad it was. Um, there's an abiding anathema on Protestants from the um, Council of Trent, uh, Roman Catholics, of uh, that anybody who says that we are justified by faith alone, there is an anathema that we have no hope for salvation. Doesn't, it doesn't matter. We, there is no way that we can be saved because you know, we believe this thing. So in the next theology pit, and I can tell my voice is starting to go already. I'm getting all excited as I you know, talk about this stuff. Um, we're going to get into a little bit more about Augustine and about, you know, original sin there and how it's affecting us. Because if we don't understand how sin is affecting us, then we can't understand why it's necessary for the next part of the application of the atonement, the um, satisfaction view of the atonement, that Christ comes and dies, and that satisfies God's wrath, and he stores up these merits in heaven that, that we heard from you know, the early church father, I think it was Tertullian, talked about these merits that he stored, these limit, limit, limitless amounts of merits and grace, and that that gets distributed through the sacraments of the church. It goes into us, and it changes us, and that's what saves us. Okay, but if there's nothing originally wrong with us, then nothing needs to go into us and change us. 
But if there is something that is inherently physically wrong with us, something does need to go into us and change us. It's a sanitive uh, view. It's a sanitive understanding. Uh, I think of the word sanitary. So it's this, this uh, sanitive grace of going in and changing us. But if there's nothing that needs to be changed, then that's pointless. And as you can tell, the um, sacramental view of grace being given through the sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church and in the Eastern churches and in some Protestant churches, this shows that you know, historically, if that sounds more familiar to you, it's because Augustine's view won out. But as you can see with the talks of Pelagianism, you can get an idea that, hey, some churches and some people still hold to some of these ideas. All right. Thank you very much. We are an hour over, according to my clock, an hour and 10 minutes, but I still got to edit this and add some stuff in too. So it's going to be a little bit longer. This is going to be a great place to close down the pit. And next week we will start out in um, discussing uh, Augustine, his idea and free will, the concept of free will. We're going to get into that a little bit more. And hopefully at that point, that should then springboard us into getting back into the application of the atonement from the governmental view and from the moralist view and from the um, satisfaction view. And we can kind of get rolling on there. But like I said, from the time of the recapitulation view of the atonement and the ransom to Satan view of the atonement, um, there that was, you know, second century articulations to the 11th and 12th century to where you get the satisfaction view. All this stuff happening in between there's reasons why this stuff changed and evolved because these other views where they may have had elements to them that were correct. For example, that something, uh, a, something had to be paid. The ransom of Satan wasn't payment to Satan, but you know, payment to God. And the recapitulation view that Christ had to be the second Adam, live the perfect life, and what all that meant to us and how is that then transferred that those are, have certain elements in them that we still hold to today that we say, yes, they're right, but in and of themselves, they're incomplete. And we're trying to get to more of a complete understanding of what the atonement means. So I'm going to close down the pit and I hope to see you next week. Please uh, visit my website, samsonstick.com. Check us out on Facebook at The Theology Pit. Um, like it, share it, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And um, now's a great time to close down the pit. Thank you. Thank you.